Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman every Monday at 9am as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Be sure to catch the new Blue Review Mondays at 9am right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the program this Monday morning. Hope uh, you are enjoying it as we are rapidly heading into uh, December and uh, the holiday season. So uh, if you're not away or if maybe you're already sitting on the beach listening to the show, uh, we're very happy to have you and uh, welcome to the program. Uh, we've got a great guest in for for December and uh, for for your listening uh, this particular week, uh, flown in all the way from the UK. Her, her name is Rabbi Leah Molstein, and uh, she's the international chair of Odzenu, which is the umbrella group of reform and progressive religious Zionists. Rabbi, thank you so much for coming into the show and for being with us on HiFM and the New Blue Review. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so uh, in South Africa, we, we have a, a reasonably small a progressive community compared with uh, other streams of, of Judaism. Can you maybe start by explaining to us uh, what does it mean to be a progressive religious Zionist? So I think for me, being a progressive religious Zionist means that I am a Zionist not just for secular reasons. I'm also a Zionist because of my religious belief, because I believe our Jewish tradition links us not just to our sacred texts, but also to a sacred space, the land of Israel. And um, I therefore strongly believe that we are kind of following in that traditional f- footsteps um, that were promised to Abraham at one point. So that's for me the religious part. I think to be a progressive religious Zionist, what it means for me is that it means we don't just rely on our traditional Jewish um, roots to inform our religious Zionism, but also bring in our universal values and our commitment to um, those universal values includes um, a commitment to human rights, to pluralism, to egalitarianism, and that I want to ensure that the state of Israel um, will become the state of Israel that um, is, lives up to those values as well. Now, in uh, in progressive Jewish circles, you have obviously women rabbis such as yourself, which you don't obviously have in orthodox circles. We have some progressive women rabbis in South Africa as well. Uh, what started you on such a path uh, that this is something that you wanted to do? So I'm, I'm originally you know, a research chemist, so I've had quite a different background. But I grew up in a family that was deeply committed to Jewish life. My family was one of the families that helped build the progressive synagogue in Munich in Germany after the war. Progressive Judaism kind of was murdered with the Shoah in Germany. And so the Jewish communities, the progressive Jewish communities only had their rebirth in the early 1990s. And my family was really very much part of it. So for a very long time, the Jewish part was my hobby and I did something else for jobs and then I realized, actually, why am I doing the thing that I love only on the side? I could do it all the time. <laughs> um, and actually, at the time, I think in Europe, there weren't that many opportunities for people to become Jewish professionals other than being rabbis and the rabbinate offers many, many different things. 
Um, and therefore I decided to become a rabbi and be able to combine all my different passions in my job and haven't looked back once. <laughs> now, although uh, progressive Jewry might be small in South Africa, it has uh, many uh, uh, communities around the world, particularly uh, in, in America uh, and in Israel. So, so as your work as the chairperson, how do you engage with these different communities and what so, kind of work do you do? So I think for me the most important thing is actually to meet them. So one of the reasons why I'm here is that I said when I became the chair of Artenu that I wanted to try and visit all the regions where we have constituents, which is all continents except for Antarctica. So, um, and because I think it's really important to listen and to get to know the community better and to understand different communities' needs. Because, for example, in the United States, progressive Judaism is very big in numbers, but it's the default position. So people don't make an active choice. So to actively engage people is actually sometimes more difficult than in a smaller community where People have already made an active decision to be a part of the progressive community and are therefore much more likely to engage with progressive Zionism as well. So, for example, in the United States, um, it's much more difficult to convince every progressive Jew to also become a member of Artenu. In South Africa, that's much easier or in, in Australia, where also the progressive Jewish community is smaller. So I look to listen, to get to know the communities, to see what they care about for the state of Israel and also what we can offer them in terms of helping them with educational materials, ideas for programming and stuff like that. And, of course, South Africa has a very strong history of Zionism as a Zionist community uh, and not maybe therefore, maybe and, there's also an interesting link with progressive rabbis uh, in South Africa and their connection to Zionism and other work uh, in South Africa as well. Yeah, and I think in South Africa what's the interesting thing about South Africa is that the progressive rabbis here were very committed to Zionism. When we look at a lot of the progressive, early progressive rabbis in Europe and the United States, they had kind of made the choice of not being the Zionists, but to stay put where they are and to build Judaism there. So I think what's interesting and exciting about progressive Judaism in South Africa is that there is this natural um, union between Zionism and being a progressive Jew. It's not a choice that you need to make, whereas in a lot of pla other places around the world, progressive Jewry only in the, I would say, in the last 60 years um, maybe 65 years after the reality of the state of Israel came about, only started to integrate Zionism more actively in their progressive Judaism again. Now, in Israel, your, your challenge is also slightly different uh, because, as you say, it only became uh, more part of Israel once it was established. So it's uh, not such a big part of the framework of the culture of the country. Uh, but also there's lots of issues to do with religion and state, which are tend to be uh, interpreted along orthodox lines. So talk to us a, a little bit about the work that you do in Israel uh, and some of the, the issues, because I think, again, these are things that as a community we might see on the news in South Africa. I'm thinking of like Woman of the Wall or, mm -hmm. or other these sorts of things, but it's not necessarily always such a big front and center thing as I imagine it might be with Americans. So I think what what we have in the state of Israel today is really a legacy of the founding fathers of the state 
totally misunderstanding what the place of organized religion could and would take within the state. So I think when Baron Gurion made a deal with the chief rabbinate, it was a very different chief rabbinate, and he did not foresee the power, the political power battle that we now have, where we literally see the ultra-Orthodox parties making or breaking the Israeli government. Um, I don't think the founding fathers ever saw that role. So they, when they handed quite a lot of powers to the chief rabbinate, I don't think they ever foresaw the chief rabbinate misusing that power. But over the years, I think what we've seen is more and more tension. So there is the issue around the women of the world, which is probably the most visual and symbolic struggle because it's around the Kotel, the Western Wall. So it's around a very important religious space of wanting to be allowed to pray as we wish to pray, for everyone to pray as we wish to pray. But I think what's actually much more significant for Israeli society, um, and it became much more significant from the 90s onwards, is questions around who is a Jew. So um, with the immigration from the former Soviet Union, that became a major issue. And now we see also issues around marriage linked to that because a lot of the immigrants from the former Soviet Union were not recognized by the rabbinate as Jewish, and now they want to marry. And if you want to marry a Jew and you are not a Jew, in Israel there currently isn't an option. If you're not a Christian or a Muslim, you don't have an option. So um, those are major issues in Israeli society in general. And I think from a progressive Jewish point of view in particular, I think a lot of people around the world are puzzled by the fact that, you know, there we have a Jewish state um, where we should be free as Jews, but it actually is really one of the very few states in the world where I, as a rabbi, could not marry two Jews to one another. Mm-hmm. Almost everywhere else in the world, I'm allowed to do that. In Israel, officially, it's still an, an offense to marry people outside the chief rabbinate. It's not just progressive Jews, the national religious Rabbis have a similar problem. Um, and interestingly, a lot, even though sometimes we're not politically very similar, the national religious groups often have the same challenges around the chief rabbinate as we do also around conversions. So, so maybe let's just go into that mm-hmm. for a second, because I do think that is uh, a fairly complicated question. But what actually is the place of the chief rabbinate in Israel and 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 why has its position become so controversial so so the chief rabbinate in israel at the moment has um very l- large amounts of jurisdiction over family family law which um in most countries is governed by s- the civil law code so marriage and divorce um being the primary things in israel those were all handed to the religious Bodies. So the chief rabbinate, but also the, the Muslim authorities and the Christian authorities. So there was no such thing as civil marriage. So in other words, uh, and I think this is worth pointing out, is that there's actually Sharia, Sharia courts in Israel that Correct. handle Muslim family law. Correct. And like okay. there's the Beit Din of the Orthodox court, there was a Sharia court in, in Israel. Um, where Muslims would go to get divorced. Okay. The Israeli government did try to address some of the injustices around that by separating. So, for example, alimony settlements are now 
part of the civil courts. Okay. But but in order to get married or to get divorced in Israel, to be legally married or legally divorced, you need to go to a religious authority. And at the moment, that is solely under the jurisdiction of the chief rabbinate. Which is composed primarily of ultra-Orthodox in, uh, rabbis, not even what you call the national religious or no, it's, Mizrahi it's, or whatever. It's, it's, it's very clearly the ultra orthodox. It's a, it's, it's a, um, effectively a closed group. It operates almost a little bit like a mafia actually in terms of who is in, who is out. And it's very much politically, um, engineered that way. And actually the national religious um, rabbis have huge problems with that too. So a lot of the struggles around marriage and conversion come out of that um, as well for the national religious rabbis. Now, what kind of work is done to try and address that? I mean, how, how do various groups, you know, work on that challenge in terms of the state? So I think there's, there's, there's several avenues taken. So one is the public campaign. Um, and I think this is why so many people have heard about the struggle of the women for the wall, because it's a symbolic issue and therefore it's easy to get publicity for that. Um, the other thing is, of course, a, a very much more of a pragmatic approach of if you just expose more and more Israelis to what is happening, at one point they will say, um, this is not something unusual. I just want to be part of it. And I think what we're seeing now is that the progressive movements, um, also the conservative movement, now officiate at many more life cycle events and expose Israelis, whether they're secular or ultra-Orthodox, to different things and changing hearts and minds as you go along, just one person by one person. And then the final step is really the legal route. Um, so the reform movement has been very active in appealing to the Supreme Court to um, change some of the legislation. So it used to be an offense um, that you could be sent to prison for wearing a tallit as a woman at the Western Wall. And that law was, for example, overturned. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm talking today to Rabbi Leah Mulson. Uh, she is from Artzainu, which is the progressive religious um, uh, Zionist organization. And we're just talking about uh, various issues that they get involved in and the reasons that she's uh, in South Africa at the moment. We'll be back just after the break. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman every Monday at 9 a.m. as he explores the devout and divine, the off-the-wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Be sure to catch the new Blue Review Mondays at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman talking today uh, about a progressive jury, progressive uh, Zionism, and uh, some issues uh, all around the world about uh, a maybe a group of the, the Jewish community that uh, uh, that we see and hear of uh, in our own community and around the world that we get can get to know uh, with the uh, international uh, representative. Uh, Rabbi, I wanted to ask you also about the woman of the wall issue, right? Because as you said, it is the one issue that I think probably our community would have seen the most of um, in general. But what, what uh, amazed me when, in a recent visit to the wall is that part of trying to solve it is that there's actually a complete separate part of the wall that they want to uh, 
that that they want to do. But my, my sense is that often people understand this issue as kind of people being able to pray uh, in mixed groups right where people know the Western world to be. But actually, it's not the case at all. So uh, I'd be interested in just what is the status of this issue and, and kind of what was the, the solution that was being proposed? So let me start with the, with the last part of the question. The, the solution that was to be, was proposed was that there would be three areas of equal prominence architecturally with, um, almost equal access to the wall. Now, there's never going to be equal access if you split the wall because the wall is not equal in every part, but that there would be three areas as parts of the plaza would be converted, it would be extended um, to the, if you're looking at the wall towards the right, and there would be a male-only section, a women-only section, and then an, a section for egalitarian prayer that would also allow women groups that wanted to have women-only prayers um, but use the Torah, which is not allowed in the women's section. And the two women's and men's sections would have remained under the control of the rabbi of the Kotel, and the third section would have been under the control of the reform and the conservative movement. Now, the government of Israel um, agreed to that compromise. It was a compromise that was voted on first in the Jewish Agency for Israel, then and at the World Zionist Organization, with agreement, by the way, of the Orthodox, the modern Orthodox parties, who agreed to the compromise because we compromised and said, We'll leave your sections under your control because the original proposal was that the whole section would be governed by a, an authority f- of all three groups. Now, when that, when that negotiation started, there was already the area of what's called Robinson's Arch, which is part of the archaeological site. Um, it is a site, it gives access to the wall, but only a very, very small bit. And at the moment, that's closed because very recently a stone fell just before Tisha B'Av, I think it was. Oh, that was um, a viral video that went around of that. Yes. Thing. Right, yes. Yes. So at the moment, because they are checking the stones, you can't actually go to the wall there. But um, apart from that, it's a platform. I always say that. At the moment, what I find unsatisfactory about this as a solution is that if you approach that area, you actually have to go through a door where it says in big Hebrew writing on the top, Yetziah, exit. So I always say, you know, we're being shown the door before we even get in. Um, and I think it, at the moment it feels very much like second-class citizens. I think if they would find a way of kind of allowing similar access and that you don't have to go through the exit, um, everyone would have been quite happy with it. Right. Now, these issues uh, that you've been talking about, the religion of state, the, 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 the prayers, uh, how does it affect the relationship between American Jewry and Israel? Because obviously American Jewry is very important for uh, sustaining the relationship between Israel and America, which is obviously very important for security reasons and all sorts of other reasons. Um, is there a, a concern in the reform uh, or the progressive community rather that this thing is lessening people's engagement with Israel because they, they don't necessarily uh, see it as, as reflecting their values? So I think there's definitely an element where the American Jewish community feels actively rejected and ignored by the Israeli government and feel like 
you know, just like the symbolism of the wall where we are second class citizens, that's what the state tells us we are by our choice of religion. Now, I have to say, realistically, of course, it used to be much worse. We have much, we are much more accepted now and on, on the whole, the days when members of Knesset would happily say that all progressive Jews are effectively non-Jews are by and large over. That's now a, a very minority view of some very ultra-Orthodox and is not accepted by mainstream anymore. So I think it's, I think it's a very complicated issue in terms of, um, cause and effect. I think there is also, um, in parts, the, the the Israeli community, the Israeli politics feels like they have less support from American Jews and therefore they don't need to listen to them so much anymore. Um, so it goes a little bit both ways. Um, but it is difficult sometimes to explain to to people that, you know, we always say you need to be a proud Jew and proud of your heritage and you need to be connected to Israel. And then you come to Israel and suddenly you're told your way of being Jewish is not accepted here. And, I mean, you know, the kind of uh, issues which American Jewry is facing at the moment, which we see on campuses and, uh, you know, the very strong anti-Semitism, first violent anti-Semitism like Tree of Life, which is a progressive uh, congregation, and and also just what we're seeing in like the Democratic Party and whatever. How do you see those challenges? Because you would be upfront with with the largest uh, denomination in the country. So so how are you seeing those sorts of challenges impacting American Jewry? I think it's very interesting that American. I think American Jewry has a has been shaken to the bones because I think they never unlike. Probably most Jews around the world that have always dealt with anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish attacks at one point or another, um, American Jews never expected that this could be happening to them. And they still, I often talk with American Jews and they say, oh, Europe is so dangerous for the Jews. And then I say, well, but the largest number of Jews that were murdered in the last five years was in America. <laughs> Um, in an act of terror. So, um, so, so they're really, for them, it's very difficult that it's now at home. I think the other big challenge around the anti-Semitism and the anti-Zionism, especially on campus, is that the level of Jewish education that a lot of American Jews received is just not very high. And a lot of them don't know anything about Israeli history. I think it's, it's, there's a big difference actually in the American Jewish community because you can learn so much about your own Jewish history and culture there that you're not looking to learn about Israel as much. So they don't even know how to defend themselves with facts because they don't know the facts. So, so it's a big challenge and I think the American Jewish community are slowly waking up to it and are working on how can we equip our young people to, to be able to, um, how can we get equip our young people to be able to respond to this, and how do we respond to it as a as a community, and how do we respond to the disappointment also that the Democratic Party, which seemed our natural political home, is not our home anymore, or not completely, or not when it comes to Israel. The other question I want to ask is around sort of assimilation and, and disaffiliation, because. 
again, there's differences, I understand, between how progressive communities approach issues like intermarriage and uh, patrilineal lineage in South Africa versus communities in America. How much of a concern is it for you as someone who's working on that interface of Jewish and Israel and uh, and and the religious aspect around the high rates of assimilation and intermarriage in the United States? So I think we need to differentiate between intermarriage and assimilation. Sure. I don't think the two are actually directly linked. I mean, we, we have to also be honest and say that there is a very clear statistical evidence that if you marry somebody who is not Jewish, it's much more likely that your grandchildren are not going to be Jewish. But I think a lot of that research is based on um, historic data, of course. And I think what the movements, what the movements have changed around the world actually is in say, in finding models of including intermarried families in their communities and giving the, the children a very strong Jewish identity. And I, I see this, for example, in my own community. We have a very high rate of intermarriage, I would say. I would say in terms of the couples that approach us to marry them, we probably have 50% of the couples not marrying a Jew. Now, in the UK, we don't do intermarriages. We don't do a wedding for for mixed-faith couples, but we do offer a blessing. But um, if I look at the children who come in our cheder, um, I don't know who of them have two Jewish parents or one Jewish parent because they are committed and they're deeply engaged and they are fully Jewish. They're not half Jewish. Mm. So I think a lot of it is about how the community can respond and how the community can um, model Jewish identity that is more complex than I have two Jewish parents. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a challenge only for progressive Jewry. Even in South Africa, amongst the more traditional orthodox kind of a community, uh, intermarriage is is um, increasing. So from your perspective, what would be the kinds of approaches that you would take to to a family that is uh, is, has, is intermarried and, and wants to still engage in the community. So I think it's very important to engage them and in a welcoming way from the start and to actually open the doors and to explore with the non-Jewish partner also what, 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 what will be their relationship with the community? How can they be part of the community so that they feel they will want to bring up their children in their community? Um, that might be uh, uh, doing security <laughs> at the front, front door or it might be because you're a musician leading the singing group for elderly people with dementia. So there can be many ways of engaging non-Jewish partners. I think for me there's always I, – I firmly believe that as rabbis we have an obligation to offer to people to convert – I never force anyone to convert, but I find it quite puzzling that often um, I I meet non-Jews who've been married for decades to Jews and I and involved with communities, and I say to them, you know, did you ever think about converting? And they say, nobody ever asked me. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, a lot of people might not be ready to convert when they first get married, but we see, for example, very high conversion rates when parents are making a commitment to have their children bow about mitzvah because suddenly they want to be part of it too. And they've realized they've made it their own, own community for 10 years, so it's 
kind of they want to belong to it. Um, now, I want to ask you a question about the UK. We're having this discussion in the run-up to a very contentious British election uh, where maybe for the first time that I can certainly think of, uh, anti-Semitism is a political issue on the ballot box, right? The Chief Rabbi Mervis has come out with statements, the Jewish Board of Deputies of of the UK, uh, around the, the Labour Party, all sorts of incidents in the last while. You, you're a rabbi in a, in a UK community. What is your feeling about the importance of this election and what might come after? So I think one of the challenges is that the Jewish community is deeply deeply shaken by this experience, partly because for many the Labour Party was their political home and they're now feeling politically homeless and with the first-past-the-post system there aren't often many alternatives except the Conservatives, which they might not feel naturally politically inclined towards. Although my community, we are in a Tory heartland, so <laughs> I don't think it's quite the same problem for my congregants. But for many, for many, it really is, is a big problem. And what I'm very, I'm afraid of two scenarios. I'm afraid of the scenario where Corbyn is elected and the Jewish community feels the pain of feeling abandoned by the non-Jewish majority, that our concerns were not heard. And at the same time, I also am concerned Corbyn winning and we've burned all our bridges and the Jewish community has always been very good in working with all governments. Um, so that is is a big concern. Um, it's and it's and of course the issue has been instrumentalized by all sorts of political groups because for the conservatives the best thing to prove with Corbyn is that he is incapable of governing of running a country. So what better way than to prove that he's incapable of solving this small little issue called anti-Semitism in his party? It shows how ineffective he is as a leader. So they don't might might not really care about the anti-Semitism. They just use it for their goals. So so I think the Jewish community is deeply hurt. It's also split because not all Jews have chosen to abandon the Labour Party and many Jews are very worried that rabbis have come out party political statements. It's unheard of. I mean, it's not something I would do. I, I believe in preaching values, not preaching what people take in the, in the ballot box. Um, and yeah, it's, it's troubling times and we'll see if we'll know more after the 12th of December. We're talking to Rabbi, uh, Milstein from, uh, Art Senu organization. She is the chairperson and uh, we've just been discussing a variety of issues. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman every Monday at 9 a.m. as he explores the devout and divine, the off-the-wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Be sure to catch the new Blue Review Mondays at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. 
We are talking today to Rabbi Leah Mulstein, who is from the Artzainu Organization of Reform and Progressive Religious Zionists. And we've just been discussing a variety of uh, issues in the Jewish world, uh, America, Israel, uh, South Africa, even the UK. Uh, so we've, we've done a, a great deal of geographic movement uh, in terms of this particular program. You mentioned Germany earlier uh, and the return of progressive Judaism to Germany, which is interesting because, of course, that's where, in some respects, progressive Judaism got its home and its start to begin with. I think for many people, the idea of Jews in Germany, certainly 10 years ago, was a bit of a strange one, uh, maybe for Israelis less so today. Uh, But for a variety of reasons, I think that's changed. And I'd be interested in your view on... uh, where Jews who are living in Germany sit today, what are some of their concerns, what are, what is the community like? So, so I think the Jewish community in Germany has been absolutely transformed, um, two times over in a sense. Um, the first time really was, um, after the Shoah, German Jewry had been destroyed. Most of German Jews were either murdered or had fled the country and were not coming back. And the Jews that then lived in Germany after the war in the 50s and 60s were mostly Russian and Polish Jews that had been living in displaced persons camps and were either too sick or um, maybe had made good business on the black market and wanted to stay. And, um, but were not German Jews really. So that was, and came from a traditional background. So they brought orthodoxy back into Germany. And then we saw in the 90s, in the early 90s, um, to mid 90s, a kind of revival of German Jewry. When I first grew up, really Jews were sitting on their suitcases and the, the assumption was that all the young people would go away anyway, either the United States or England or Israel. But um, in the 90s, the German government, as part of the reunification deal, made a deal with the former Soviet Union to allow Jews from the former Soviet Union to immigrate into Germany. And almost 200,000 Jews came in the span of about 10 years, which completely transformed the community and um, actually made created a really exciting place because a lot of the Jews from the former Soviet Union came with a very strong Jewish identity, but not a lot of real Jewish knowledge, academic knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we had a very exciting time rediscovering Judaism. And um, Ju- Germany was for a very long time the only Jewish community outside the state of Israel that was actually growing because of this influx of Jews from the former Soviet Union. So new synagogues were built with a lot of support from the German government. Um, uh, rabbis were ordained again. So one of the South African rabbis, for example, was part of Malcolm Matitiani, was part of the first um, ordination of rabbis again on German soil after the Shoah. Um, and it was a very exciting place. And yet in Germany too, just like everywhere around Europe, the right-wing extremist voices, anti-Semitic voices are growing. It is a growing threat. And we saw it um, in Halle just, just a few months ago where the attacker tried to attack the synagogue um, and thanks to the money of the Jewish agency that had reinforced the door, didn't get in. Um, so, 
But I think what is different, for example, in Germany to places like Hungary is the Jewish community still feels very strongly that the state is there to protect them and will protect them and will stand with them. Um, and it's still quite an optimistic community, I think. And German Jews have always been extremely proud. Um, uh, my father's family is really a long, long line of proud German Jews, even though they never really lived in Germany because they're Czech Jews, um, but always spoke German. And for them, it was, it was the natural thing when the communists inv invaded Czechoslovakia, the place to go and flee communism was Germany. So for me, I never grew up with being able to question it. I was born there. So, you know, you don't question. I, I started to question it when I moved first time to England and I came home to my host family and the, the ho my host mum was shaking with a letter in her hand. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, you received a letter from Dachau. <laughs> um, because, and I said, yes, I received a letter from Dachau. It's a concentration camp. <laughs> and I said, well, it's also the neighborhood where my friends live. <laughs> but I never really questioned it. Of course, I, I was aware my, my, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So it's not like I wasn't aware of, of the Holocaust connection. Um, although they didn't, no, none of my family were in Dachau. But, um, but it's an, it's an interesting thing. You don't have that distance. And I understand. I understand that many Jews felt like, how could you live in Germany again? But on the other hand, it's a country which had an incredible Jewish history. And, you know, I always felt very strongly we shouldn't have the Nazis that defeat, that laid victory after the defeat of abandoning a country that had brought forth so much Jewish um, wisdom, culture, everything. It's interesting what you say about the Jewish agency and and the door that had reinforced the door because you know if you drive around our synagogues in South Africa you will see barriers and 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 whatever that are up there for similar reasons also paid for by the Jewish agency and it's it's always interesting uh, when when this kind of attacks take place the politicization so uh, there was someone who was in Halle who wrote a piece afterwards about how they really appreciated the gun laws in Germany because that had stopped the attacker. But it's, and it's interesting that you, you bring the door because it, it kind of talks about Jewish self-reliance and, and what we have to do as our own community to make sure we're also safe first and not rely exclusively on the state. Yeah. And I think, because I think that's, I think Jewish communities have always realized, I mean, it's a, it's a, you cannot do it. I think it's very difficult to do it completely without the state. So, so in Germany, um, most of, although in Halle, that wasn't the case, but, you know, I always grew up with the police sitting in the van outside the synagogue. And I always knew my, you know, it was our job to, at the Kiddush, I think you call it a brocha here, um, <laughs> to make two extra plates for the two policemen who were sitting outside in their car keeping us safe. Um, so I think you also needed that. But I think it, absolutely it is important that we also, we need to prioritize our own safety and invest in it ourselves and train our own security volunteers and because you know in the end we've learned unfortunately the hard way that we can't always rely on others doing it for us now for obvious reasons i understand why german jews would be sensitive to the rise of uh, neo-nazis in the recent times in germany uh what about the other side of the coin? A lot of the media that we see coming out of Germany is about the issue of uh, fundamentalist Islamists, for example. 
uh, putting the, the community under pressure. Is that something that you've seen? So I think, actually, the Jewish community has felt very little of that. Um, I think on the whole... So, first of all, in, in Germany, very clearly the statistics say, as a Jew, you're much more likely to be killed by a right-wing extremist than by an Islamist terrorist. Um, I think on the whole, in, in Germany also, the few attacks that we've had have just focused on the general population or maybe the police because it's the Jewish community is really too small mm. and it's not not there in their interest at all. So so really we felt it very, very little. And on the whole, the Jewish community has a very positive relationship with the Muslim immigra- immigrant community because actually we, we can sympathize. We've all been, you know, either our parents had to flee or we ourselves have moved. We understand challenges of migration. There are lots of cultural things that we have in common of prioritizing family, which is not really a German thing to do, German Christian thing. Um, so, so on the whole, I think the Jewish community has not been very troubled by that. Now, you're in South Africa. Uh, you're coming to meet the community. You're meeting, I'm sure, with uh, Durban and Cape Town and the Board of Deputies, the Zionist Federation, that sort of thing. Uh, are you going to be doing anything else while you're here? Um, just so, meetings, at least maybe a lion somewhere <laughs> along the line. So, so I did get a wonderful tour of Soweto this morning, which was very interesting and for me very, very important to be able to kind of see with my own eyes. Um, but, um, yeah, unfortunately it's a very short trip. So I'm going mostly to see Jewish people. <laughs> and do meetings and be in synagogues. But it's really a pl- privilege and a pleasure. I mean, I have a full-time job. I do this in my free time. So my community wants me back at some point. <laughs> and uh, obviously Otsenu uh, has a branch here. Uh, it certainly is active, I know, in the Zionist Federation uh, here in South Africa. So if, if people want to get hold of them or engage them, uh, what is the best way to do that? Um, so... Uh, the best way is probably to contact Riva Foreman. Okay. <laughs> if people need their, those details, I'm sure they can find Riva Foreman's details. Um, and alternatively, we have a website which also um, connects peop- all our constituents. It's just artsenu.org. Um, so people can fill out the contact form and then we'll put them in touch. And, of course, there's a youth movement as well, which Absolutely. is NETSER. What do you think about the importance of youth movements for Zionism and keeping young people engaged with uh you know with with Israel I think youth movements are a really important learning platform experiential learning is something that is cannot be mirrored in the classroom and I think a lot of you know really Zionism grew out of the youth movements a lot of the Zionist pioneers came from the youth movement so it's very important and so I'm really glad I get to visit the Netzer camp um in Cape Town um, so I'm very much looking forward to it. And I think it is important. I, I think it's important that we don't neglect the adults just because we invest in the youth. But in the end, if we don't invest in the youth, there won't be any adults around in a few years who will care to be engaged. Well, uh, Dr. Dr. Rabbi uh, <laughs> Leah Malthausen, thank you so much for, uh, for coming to South Africa and for being on the show. And I hope that you have a very successful rest of your trip here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on the show.